Good morning, Trinity. Thank you, thank you, you guys. Uh, I'm excited that the AC is working this morning so well. Uh, now, I often sweat during sermons, but not before. Uh, guys, it is great to be with you this morning. Uh, I want to get started just by saying thank you. We have been here about a year now, and so many of you have poured into our lives in a tremendous way. Uh, most recently, in the last few weeks, shown up with meals, uh, prayers, and encouragement as we have welcomed home our daughter, Penelope. Um, so thank you guys for the way you've embraced us uh, into this local body. Uh, and this morning, like Matt said, we are going to continue our look at this famous passage, the Sermon on the Mount, this moment where in the book of Matthew, one of the Gospels, a, a book that captures the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, through eyewitness accounts, we have this long teaching where Jesus gathered his disciples and said, this is what it looks like to follow me. This is the new ethics of the kingdom. These are the new rules. This is what it looks like. And over and over again, we're challenged to see that it is not something we can do outside of Christ. And so this morning, we're going to continue to unpack that with perhaps one of the most famous passages of all, where Jesus talks about how, we're relate, how we are to relate to money, to material possessions, what that looks like in the kingdom. And in studying that this week uh, and the weeks prior, I have been deeply convicted. And I'm convinced if we look at this, if we study it, if we meditate on it, if we get it into the marrow of our lives, we can't say that this doesn't have something for us. We can't say, especially in the affluent West where we have so much, we have so much that we can't look at this and see a challenge. We can't look at this and not change as we follow Christ. So that's what we're going to look at this morning because if you're anything like me, uh, I spend a lot of my time and my energy focused on kind of what's in my fridge, right, and what's in my bank account. And we're going to investigate that this morning. So if you would, if you've got your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 6, verses 19. We're going to look at Matthew 6, 19 through 24. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, you'll see there's pew Bibles there, or I guess metal folding chair Bibles uh, on the end. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, that's yours to keep. Uh, take that home with you. Uh, we're going to look at Matthew six nineteen through 24. Uh, stand with me in honor of the word of God. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is God's word. So what we're going to see this morning in this passage, we're going to 
take a look at three contrasts. You can go this way or you can go this way. Three pretty distinct contrasts. And then as we look at those, we're going to come to some applications, right? What do we do with this? What does tomorrow look like in light of God's word that we're looking at this morning? And the first contrast we're going to uh, take a look at is what we might think of as rot and ruin versus eternally new. Rot and ruin versus eternally new. And we get this from verses 19 through 21. This one is perhaps the most straightforward. Treasures on earth, right, are exposed. Treasures on earth will fall away. You will hold them and watch them be destroyed. Moth will eat the clothes you love. Rust will decay the car you treasure. There is nothing on earth that won't be affected by the ravages of time. That which you value most on this earth, any thief could take. Everything is vulnerable on this earth. That's the first contrast. That's the rotten ruin. And on the other side, he says, eternally new. He says, put your treasure where nothing can touch it. Where nothing can touch it. There is no moth to eat or rust to destroy or thief to steal. He makes this choice so obvious for us, right? And I love passages like this in Scripture on the one hand because they're so obvious I don't need to think about it too much, right? It's not the words, it's the application that is hard with this kind of teaching. But fundamentally, this is not a question of where you will store your treasures but rather a question of what do you treasure? If we treasure earthly things, if we count it of the highest value, then our treasures are earthly, period. That's where our heart is. That's where our heart is, right? This idea of the core of our being. And it raises the question this morning, what is treasure, right? What is treasure? And I think if we're honest, we would say treasure is that which we value so much that we don't even think we have to defend it, right? This is the idea of inherent worth. So like imagine I have a pile of gold. You would never come up to me and go, hey, so why do you like that pile of gold? Or why do you find that pile of gold uh, valuable? Why are you protecting it, right? Uh, That one might not hit home, that imagery, right? Because I've never owned a pile of gold, I don't even know where I'd store such a thing. Uh, Big fan of ducktails, right? Scrooge McDuck swimming in a pile of gold. I don't have that kind of access to wealth, right? But I have other things that I really value. I, I have a MacBook Air, my computer, my work life, my social life to a degree, right? The way I keep up with the news, check my banking. Almost everything I do on a regular basis in life touches that MacBook Air. It has a case right? A little clear case, because I don't want to mar its beauty, right? And then it goes into another little padded sleeve that is also waterproof. And I also keep it out of the clutches of my four-year-old who does not see it as valuable, right? It kind of is thin, like a Frisbee. But I think of my MacBook Air as inherently valuable. No one has ever come up to me and go, why do you like that computer, right? 
What is that good for? And so our, our treasure, right, uh, if it's where our heart is, it's where the affections of our heart lie. It's what we set our focus on. We say, this is good. This is good. This is life. This is treasure. We don't defend their value. This is a heart issue. Verse 21 makes this clear. And in the first contrast, we almost get the sense that Jesus is making this contrast so obvious for us that we don't have to overanalyze it. Take the thing that will rot or take the thing that is untouchable. That's it. What are you going to choose? Which way are you going to go? What are you going to value? Where are you going to put your heart? What are you going to define as treasure? That's our contrast one. Rot and ruin or eternally new? Contrast two, this one slightly more complicated, but basically light versus darkness there in verses 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. It's a clear contrast, but a little bit tricky with this whole eye Language, But I think if we look at the flow, the thought here, we can unpack it a bit. That basically, Christ is getting at the idea of a healthy light, or healthy eye rather, which brings in light. I was going to kind of do some biology research for this sermon, but then I realized some of this audience, you guys actually know what's going on in an eye. Like past like the first two sentences on a Wikipedia page. But the basic idea is light comes into the eye. That's what I got. (laughs) That's it, right? And if your eye is not working, no light comes in. It's dark. And if light is coming in, then your whole body responds to that light. That's how your foot, which is not an eye, knows how to take the next step. But if you're in darkness, your foot doesn't know where to take the next step. But then Jesus, he raises the bar on this language, and I think he goes to something a little uh, ironic here. In verse 23, if the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And and I think he's pointing here to the idea that we are self-deceiving. We think we have eyes. We can feel them, right, in our heads, and we go, oh man, it is just bringing me accurate information. But if the light in us, literally the thing that's meant to bring us light, brings us darkness, instead we are convincing ourselves that we're receiving light, but it is utter darkness. I recently heard a a podcast about uh, a high school uh, for students who are blind, and they interviewed this one uh, young lady, I think she was a sophomore, and she talked about how she found out she was blind. Sounds like a weird thing, right? You think you would just know you were blind. But until she was seven years old, she didn't know. She had some vague vision out of the side of her eyes, and she interacted with the world like that. And she thought that's how everyone's eye worked. That was normal. It wasn't until uh, some teachers noticed what was going on, brought her mom in, and then had her tested, and she was hardly seeing anything at all. 
And I think in Jesus' words here, he's pointing to our ability to be self-deceiving. Maybe even especially about money. And one of the ways we do this, we tend to always look at others who have more than us. We look at others who have more than us and say, I don't have enough. I must not have enough because they have more, right? Rockefeller was famously asked, you know, how much money do you need? And he said, just a little more, right? We're self-deceiving. We tend to look around. And yet here in the West, we live with a level of wealth and comfort that is unparalleled in all of history. I've got a good buddy who often jokes about this with ice cream. I'm a big fan of ice cream. I'm sorry I'm bringing that up on such a hot day with none to give you. But ice cream for the longest time was only for royalty, right? Think about what went into making ice cream, ice. Hundreds of years ago, right, you had to live way up north if you were going to get ice or way down south, right? And only royalty had access to these ingredients. And now, like I went last night to get Tiffany ice cream at the store, and I was overwhelmed by the choices, right? It was 50 feet of ice cream, and I could get as much as I want for like $4.50, right? That which used to be only for kings is now for us every day, and we don't even think about it. And yet most of us, myself included, we never think of ourselves as wealthy. We think of ourselves as always needing, always needing. Light versus darkness. Rot and ruin versus eternally new. And this contrast three, beloved master or hated master. Beloved master or hated master. In verse 24, he says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Again, very clear language from Jesus here. We can serve God or we can serve money. Period. And what's interesting, he uses this language that one of these masters will be loved. Right? We don't think about masters, right, as those who are over us as something we inherently love, right? We don't have uh, a king. We elect somebody, right? But only for a little while, right? The idea of loving a master is even kind of a strange one to our modern ears. But he's saying, you will love one master. You will be devoted to one master. You will aim your heart at that master and what that master requires. And the other one you will hate. You will despise. But just like these other contrasts are so clear, uh, this one is meant to be obvious. Think about it. One of these masters is just an idol. If you love money, it does not love you back. If you are devoted to money, it is not devoted to you in return. It's an indifferent thing, an inanimate object, right? Somebody owed me some money recently, and they handed me a $20 bill, and that $20 bill didn't go, no, man, stop. I was hanging out with this guy, right? It was really good over here. He was my friend. No, 
There was nothing about that interaction, right? That money was indifferent to who had it and what was going on with it, right? Money at best is a tool. It's a tool. It's not a God. And I think there's a great illustration here for us from God's word in the Old Testament. This prophet Isaiah, he talks about this exactly, right? Because we think of idols as some abstract thing, as like a carving, right? But what I'd like to get at this morning, guys, is that we take money, we drive to Kroger, we buy what we need to feed our family with it. It is useful. And then if you're like me, you get as many points, right, as you can, and you go use it at the gas station, trying to get that mythical $1 off a gallon. Has anyone ever gotten that? Right? But we use it for useful things, and then we go home, and we put it on an altar, and we bow down before it, and we say, you will save me. You will give me security. You will give me control over my life. So, again, Isaiah, he gets at this, right? Uh, This is from Isaiah 44, uh, section 16 through uh, 17 or so. And he talks about this guy who goes out and he cuts down a tree. And what does he do with that tree? Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and he says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. So far, so good, right? We're just using it as a tool. It's useful. In verse 17, and the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. Deliver me for you are my God. I think if we're honest, if we actually pause and reflect on these challenging words from Jesus, we see hints of this same language in our heart day to day. We might not have an actual altar built at our home, but perhaps we have one in our heart. And we say to money, we say to our possessions, we say to the world's definition of security, deliver me for you are my God. Practically, you are my God. All the while, it cannot save, it cannot deliver. But it doesn't feel like that, right? On the surface, it feels like wisdom, like planning, like good investment choices, like stewardship. But if we are not careful, brothers and sisters, we slowly but surely find our security and our hope and our trust being put in money instead of God. We build our lives and our purpose around it, and not God. And what happens over time is this slow erosion, right? It becomes the thing that satisfies us, albeit fleeting, right? It's short satisfaction, but we start getting satisfied, right? You, I mean, I've been in this place before where when things were going really bad, I just needed a quick trip to the mall, just a quick one, right? Just something small, Maybe like new pair of shoes on the discount wall at the Nike outlet, right? That's like 35 bucks. That's not a big deal, right? But I could literally feel myself feeling better. Ah, got those new shoes. Spent a little money. Got my satisfaction. That is a small, small thing, right? 
But slowly but surely, what happens is those small things become the thing we chase. We draw our hope, our satisfaction, our enjoyment from them. And our love for God grows cold, and the eternal kingdom seems far off, seems of little value. This should not be. As followers of the one true God, we are called to serve the true master, the master who is devoted to us. He's not devoted to us because we're devoted to him, but he's devoted to us first. He doesn't respond to our love, but we respond to his love. He loves us first. He loves us perfectly. So, these are our contrasts. This is what we're wrestling with in this passage. First, uh, eternally new or rot and ruin. Darkness versus light. Or lastly, uh, a hated master or a loved master. And so we're going to spend the rest of our time uh, going into application. What does this look like for you this afternoon? What does it look like for you tomorrow morning? Uh, and the first thing, guys, and I, I kind of feel silly a little bit about this, but this should be our first application always, is if you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope for salvation, you must start there. Nothing else about this message, nothing else about the word of God will make sense outside of faith in Jesus Christ. It was Christ on the cross who secured a treasure for you. It was Christ's death on the cross. Even though he lived a perfect life, he took on our imperfections. He took on our sin that we might have his righteousness that that might be our new treasure. And unless we have put our faith in Jesus, unless our hearts are aimed in that direction, then there is no renewal, right? If there's no new wellspring of life in us through Jesus Christ, at best, we'll come up with some monk-like rules, right, on how to live an ascetic life the rest of our days. We'll be budget-friendly, right, and we'll save money everywhere we can, and we'll cut coupons, and we'll pat ourselves on the back, right? We'll be righteous about money, self-righteous, but no warmth here. So the first application always for me is going to be turn to Jesus Christ in faith as your only hope. He loves you. He came on purpose to die for you. When we know and enjoy Jesus, he becomes our treasure. So, second application. Uh, For those of you who've put your faith in Jesus and are looking at this text going, yeah, it's obvious, I get it. Three contrasts, right? It's not that complicated, guy, right? Uh, If that's where you are right now, and then you start looking at your own life and your own behaviors, and you go, wait a minute, things are starting to get muddier, right? It's clear on the page, it's hard once I start looking here, right? What do we do with that? And I thought it might be helpful Um, for us as a congregation to get some diagnostic tools, right? Uh, Diagnostic tools, ways that we can investigate. The simplest one I could think of was uh, a thermometer, right? That's technically a diagnostic tool, medical people, uh, to see if somebody has a fever, right? Thermometer goes in, you read the the measurement, you know if you've got a fever or not. And so these are three diagnostic tools, three ways for us to figure out what's going on in our hearts to investigate. And the first one, oh, and by the way, these are not meant to be for you in isolation, right? Before I even go into them, I would encourage you 
Find somebody near you. Find somebody from your small group, uh, a friend. Unpack these together because uh, we're really blind about our own stuff uh, and friends can help us unpack that. Um, and I don't mean like start narking on each other, but rather like do that in compassion and love. All right, so let me go there. All right, so the first one, the tightness of our fist. The tightness of our fist. How tightly do we control our financial life And I don't mean how well do we follow a budget, but rather are we so focused on some financial goal or some way that we are defining financial success for us or for our family that we hold our money like this always. Everything we have is a gift from the Lord and we are called to steward those gifts, right? But I think we often define stewardship too narrowly. Stewardship just means you take care of what God has blessed you with. But I think we then add the comma, just for me and my family. Right? I steward for me and my family. I have for me and my family. And that's not what God calls us to. We are to steward for our families, right? But we're also to steward for our brothers and sisters in faith in the local body, for the needs of the poor among us, for the community at large. So the first question, the tightness of our fist. It is everything that we have is a gift from God, uh, but it is not ours to keep. It is ours to give. Second diagnostic tool, the temperature of our hearts. What is the temperature of our hearts? Are our hearts indifferent, cold, unmoved, towards ministry needs, or just needs in general, both in our church and in our city? Or are we possibly, are we even at a point where we're resentful to those who might approach us to ask, because we've just been asked too much, right? And resentment is the first emotion from our heart. And do we give, when we give, not just generously, but do we give with joy and compassion and thanksgiving and freely, right? Or is giving become just another line item in the budget, right? It's just, that's done. That's done. Or is it an act of worship? What is the temperature of our hearts? We're meant to give with joy and thanksgiving. We're meant to give with prayers for those we're giving to. What is the temperature of our hearts? Our third diagnostic tool, and I couldn't help myself. I made this one a contrast so it would stick better. Uh, Make a practice of the promises of the Lord instead of making a practice of the promises of the world. Make no mistake, there are promises of the Lord and there are promises of the world and they are in in competition with each other. They are saying different things to you right now. The world is going to tell you that you should measure your life by those around you. It's going to tell you what retirement should look like, what your life should look like, what your house should look like, what your bank account should look like. And it's not just going to tell you that like in some vague manner. It's going to give you measurements. Oh, you're 30? It should be like this, 35, 40, 45, 50, right? It's going to put you on a chart and tell you this is what you should have, 
and who you should be and what you should be about. And the only way to fight that, y'all, is by making a practice of the promises of the Lord. When we realize that we are satisfied with the things of the earth or that our hearts are longing for them, right, through these conversations, through putting ourselves before the word in prayer, we repent, we turn to Jesus in faith, and then we dive into his promises to fight the promises of the world. The New Testament tells us that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ, right? But that stops uh, being a vague statement when we actually know the promises of God. We can't know them unless we go to the word, we pour over it, we meditate on it, we pray it into our hearts and our lives, we feed on it, we feast. So how do we, how do, we do this? Um, I've just got a couple promises to start with. I'm going to read them over you. If you want, write down just the reference. I'm probably going to go too fast to write down the whole thing. Um, but for starters, y'all, Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. That means the worst things about you do no longer define you. That is past. That is past. There is no condemnation. Or Romans 8.15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You are now a son, an adopted son of the Most High God. All that is his is yours today in Christ. You don't need all these other things to satisfy. You have everything in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The new has come. And lastly, this one is from Isaiah 41.10. And this is one that I've been memorizing. Um, and I'm bad at scripture memory, right? Like this is not something you guys have to feel like, oh, I tried that once like in high school with a group that was really serious about this. And I I stunk at it, so I never picked it back up again, right? This is for you now. Take as long as you need. There's no pressure. But you've got to get these into your heart some way, and memorization is one of those ways. So the last couple weeks, what that's looked like for me is in the morning, looking at this verse and praying it. Praying it. Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So what do we do when we leave here today? What are our applications? We put our faith in Jesus. We turn to him as our only hope. And then we take some of these diagnostic tools we talked about. Start engaging with them in your family, in your small groups, right? In your friends, over coffee. Grab somebody on the phone. Start investigating this stuff because these kind of passages are so easy to put aside and then make a practice of the promises of the Lord that they would speak louder than the promises of the world. My prayer for us here at Trinity is that money and earthly possessions would not be a taboo subject. That we would not sit back and silently judge what somebody else is doing with their money, right? Right? that we would not assume motive. 
that we would actually engage with each other. And that we would not assume that uh, the American dream is the Christian dream, brothers and sisters. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, I just come before you daunted by these words, Lord. Knowing that there is no way myself or anyone else can follow this teaching without becoming a new creation in Christ, Lord. Without your grace, Lord, which says no matter how we have failed to live up to your standards, you lived these standards perfectly and you've given us your righteousness by faith. We don't do anything to earn it. Lord, with the mercy we have received by faith in Christ, would that empower us to live lives where we do not hold our money tightly, where we are engaged with the needs of our body, with our community, where we don't define our identity and our success in material possessions, Lord, but rather in the risen Lord Jesus, who has promised to satisfy all of our needs, not just now, but for eternity. Would you set our eyes on the horizon of eternity, Lord, that we might not be satisfied with the decaying things around us? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.